All right, everyone, it is time to begin. It is time to begin. You should have a packet that Sherry dutifully prepared for you. Uh, the, we'll begin with, we will begin with prayer and then um, give a little bit of an overview and launch into each of the lessons appointed for tonight. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, you proclaim Jesus, your beloved Son, when his body shone with your eternal glory in the transfiguration. Give us ears to hear only Jesus, to delight in his word, and to know that through his suffering and death, we shall rise with him to eternal life and the resurrection on the last day. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So, <clears throat> the stories that we have uh, coming forward in your packet are all church year stories, and they all correspond to the gospel reading for the Sunday. So this coming Sunday is the transfiguration of our Lord. And that's the reading. The Sunday <clears throat> following that, excuse me, Septuagesima Sunday, these three Jesimas, which is this interlude between Epiphany in the one-year series and Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent, these three Jesima Sundays, Septuagesima, is the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Sexagesima is the parable of the sower and the seed. That's Church Year Story 12. And then Quinquagesima, Luke 18, Jesus heals the blind man and predicts his passion, which is the last of the Jesima Sundays right before uh, the beginning of Lent and Ash Wednesday. So we have, uh, I always think it's kind of nice, especially for the uh, preschool, kindergarten, first, second grade level, when they're coming to church and they're hearing those readings and then they have that in Sunday school and then you've heard that together as a family and then you can take it home with you during the week and talk about it throughout the week. You know, that's part of the, hopefully, beauty of it all, okay? Some of the catechism stories that we have are, you know, especially grounded in foundational things like creation, uh, the institution of marriage, bless you, the, uh, the fall into sin, Tower of Babel, you know, all of those early Genesis accounts which are so important for understanding life today. But then we have this long string of church year stories that uh, come at this time of the year, which is kind of nice. I'd like to uh, begin each uh, story tonight with having you look at the pictures that Sherry got for these are fantastic. This transfiguration one is uh, probably my favorite of the lot for tonight. Transfigured, metamorphosis is what the Greek word means here, that he that when Jesus is transfigured, his flesh, his clothing, 
Everything about him is transformed. There is a metamorphosis. And what the metamorphosis um, shows is that he who is the son of God but humbled himself, himself in a state of humiliation so that if you were to see Jesus at the time of his earthly sojourn, he's a man. He's an ordinary man. He doesn't levitate off the ground. He's an ordinary man who eats and who sleeps and who drinks and sweats and so forth. In the transfiguration, this metamorphosis, one is able to see then the glory of God shining through his flesh. We speak in the creed about how he is true God and true man in one person. But it's in the transfiguration where you are allowed to see the divinity and to see the divine nature and glory of God that we will all partake of in the resurrection on the last day. So anyway, you see him you know, shining brilliantly in this picture. Moses and Elijah are with him. It's easy to tell who's who, right? Mm -hmm. Moses is on the left in the picture, or to Jesus' right, holding the tablets of the law. And Elijah is on the right. So by process of elimination, that's Elijah. Moses and Elijah both had their own Old Testament encounters with the glory of God. Moses at the burning bush, the bush that burned but was not consumed. I am who I am. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have heard your cry. Uh, Elijah is the prophet who bore witness to the fire of God falling from heaven on Mount Carmel and consuming the sacrifice there, you know, lapping up the water and the stones and the sacrifice and, and everything, this awesome display of God's glory. So Moses witnessed it in all of the miracles and the plagues of judgment upon Egypt. Uh, he witnessed the glory of God at the burning bush when he went up on the mountain and then came down, his face reflected the glory of God, okay? Um, all right, so then you have the disciple. Oh, one other thing. Matthew's gospel doesn't include it. But if you were asked, what were they talking about? Luke's gospel says that they were talking literally about his exodus. And that expression, his exodus, is a reference to his death, okay, where he is the way out of sin and death through the shedding of his blood upon the cross. So Moses and Elijah are representative of Old the, the entire Old Testament, Moses and the prophets, and they are talking with Jesus there on the Mount of Transfiguration about his upcoming crucifixion, which is not too many uh, weeks ahead. The disciples, Peter, James, and John, have fallen down before him in this, this vision, and we'll take a look at that. So it's a neat, uh, it is a neat picture.
Let's go to Matthew chapter 17. Verses 1 through 9. So it's not a long reading. And that's why it's good. It's, it's one of these readings that provides you the opportunity to remember other stories because of the people that are involved. Moses, Elijah, and then Peter, James, and John, some of the things that they saw or witnessed. So after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles. A tabernacle is a dwelling. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, Peter is not completely off base. He wants to preserve the moment. So this is where we are all headed, to our own transfiguration with the Lord in the resurrection from the dead when this mortal flesh will put on immortality, this corruptible flesh will put on incorruption. So we're all headed that way. You know, as St. Paul would say, I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is, which is far better. <clears throat> While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Now, when you think of a bright cloud... What other Bible story should you think of that had a bright cloud, Tom? Uh, leading the Israelites through the wilderness. Yep, and that cloud is specifically called the glory cloud. It's one phenomenon, but it appears as a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. But it is the glory cloud, okay? Because the glory of God's saving presence was located in the cloud. And in the Old Testament, where was the cloud? The cloud would appear, not only lead them, but then would suspend over, after the Mount Sinai incident, over the mercy seat between the cherubim. So the location, that's significant because the location of God's glory, his saving presence, was there at the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat where the blood was, was shed, was poured, sprinkled. Jesus' birth, the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. So there's continuity, the glory of the Lord in the Old Testament, the glory of the Lord in the pillar of cloud and fire that led them out, the glory of the Lord there at the tabernacle above the mercy seat, the glory of God when the word became flesh and tabernacled among us and the glory of God shone on the shepherds and the angels of God saying glory to God in the highest. So all this glory, what is it but the glory of God's self-giving, sacrificial love in Christ? Okay. So this transfiguration 
the glory that they're beholding here, being manifest here, is really a glory that will be on display in the cross. And then in the resurrection, which are taken as one uh, glorious event. Okay. A voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When did the father last say that of Jesus? At his baptism, this is my beloved son, the son of my love in whom I am well pleased. There at his baptism, he's anointed with the Holy Spirit. The sin of the world is imputed to him. He becomes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, the transfiguration, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He is moving toward the cross, and there the glory of God's self-giving sacrificial love proclaimed at the baptism, uh, is proclaimed again at the transfiguration, and will come to its fulfillment in the death and resurrection. Then there's two words that are added here in the English, hear him, hear him. And those words specifically, at the baptism of Jesus, you think of Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, sacrifice. Here, still the Lamb of God, but hear him. Do you remember in the Old Testament? Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me. Him you shall hear. Okay, so that prophecy of him being the prophet, the greatest prophet, is then um, proclaimed here by the Father. And when his disciples heard it, the voice from heaven, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Sounds like the shepherds, sore afraid. Huh? But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. What is that word of Jesus to them? It is a word of forgiveness, a word of absolution, and arise, a word of command. Arise. 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 Resurrection. That's right. Did you cheat? Yeah. So, by the way, now I didn't say this. I didn't say this last Sunday, but Jonah is asleep in the boat. Jesus is asleep in the boat, and then they are awoken from sleep. That is a resurrection image. So here and linked together, see, the word of absolution: "I forgive you. Do not be afraid." Is what raises the dead. Okay. Forgiveness of sins is what raises the dead. You know this from the catechism. Where there's forgiveness of sins, there's also life and salvation. Okay? So that is resurrection talk. This last week, we had the significance of baptism in the congregation at prayer. This coming week, what is confession? That you confess and receive absolution. Last week, that the old Adam dies, is drowned and dies, and the new man comes forth and arises. By what? By the power of the forgiveness of sins. 
The forgiveness of sins, Jesus' absolution, is what causes the resurrection of the body from the dead. And therefore, the transfiguration of our own sinful flesh into immortal and incorruptible flesh. Okay? And who does it come from? Jesus, arise, do not be afraid. And he touches them. So remember what could not happen in the Old Testament with the Ark of the Covenant and the glory of God? They could not touch it. Now he, who is the tabernacle of the Lord, touches them. And they are not destroyed, but they become, we become, partakers of his divine nature. Okay? Pretty cool there, don't you think, Tom? And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Again, faith's object is Jesus. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Why? Because they were incompetent. It's true. Until the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit upon them so that they would be faithful to what they're seeing, they were incompetent. They weren't ready. Okay. I'm just going to go through two last things here with this, and then we'll move on. The central thoughts, the transfiguration of Jesus' body, which shone like the sun in brilliant white light, shows him to be the eternal Son of God. The appearance of the prophets, Moses and Elijah with Jesus, demonstrate that the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets, are fulfilled in Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection. The focus of our faith is upon Jesus only because he is the Father's beloved Son in whom he is well pleased because he has willingly suffered and died for our salvation. We are to hear only Jesus for guidance, comfort, peace, and salvation. And in the transfiguration of our Lord, the disciples beheld the future glory that awaited them in the resurrection of the body to incorruption and immortality in Christ. Now, I do want to take you to one other passage just for your edification. It is in 2 Peter. So, <clears throat> 2 Peter comes toward the end of the New Testament after Hebrews and James is 1 Peter and then 2 Peter. This first chapter, um, Peter gives testimony about the transfiguration. In verse 2, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory, there's our word again, and virtue, by which have been given to us, so that he's called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these, through these promises from Jesus, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. 
So that reference to becoming partakers of the divine nature, you're seeing the divine nature in the transfiguration. So the glory of God in the Old Testament would kill them. Now are we not, now we are not only not killed by it, but we are transfigured by it and become partakers of the divine nature. Then in verse 16 of the same chapter, he says, we did not follow cunningly devised fables, you know, stories intended to dupe and trick people. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word made more sure which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place or a lamp that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What this prophetic word made sure is how they witnessed in Jesus, not just his transfiguration, but certainly culminating there in the transfiguration. They witnessed in Jesus' ministry, his death, his resurrection, his transfiguration, they witnessed the fulfillment of the prophetic word of the Old Testament. So the pre this made more sure, it's more, uh, more better to say, was confirmed. So the prophetic word of the Old Testament was confirmed in Jesus' ministry, his transfiguration, death, and resurrection as the fulfillment of that word. <clears throat> it's what I say so often about the apostles. The apostles as eyewitnesses aren't merely eyewitnesses of what Jesus did and said. But as such, they were also eyewitnesses of the fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures. That's why those, those, that word is confirmed, which you do well to follow as a light that shines, a lamp that shines in a dark place. Yeah, studying this in preparation um, with this text, in the New King James, this... Um, Verse 19, we have the prophetic word made more sure, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Actually, the word there for light is lamp, a lamp that shines in the dark place. So what does the lamp shine but the light? So it's the idea that the scriptures are the lamp of the light which is Christ, that the scriptures proclaim. Does that make sense to you? <clears throat> so the scriptures are the lamp, and the light that shines forth from the lamp, from the scriptures, is Christ. Okay. So I, I didn't know that before, because I just never looked at it or paid attention to it. But All right. Any other questions on the transfiguration? Yes, that's correct. All right. 
And then we move on to the next, which is for Septuagesima, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Okay. Mark someplace or whatever, the grace of God. Salvation is a gift that can't be earned. That's what this is about. So, Sarah is hired at the beginning of the day to work. Tom is hired about 11 o'clock in the day to work. Hannah about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The, just before the end of the day, Beth is hired. And then you all finish the day's work. And you come to me for your wages. And I pay you all the same thing. And Sarah says, that's not fair. She's getting the same as I'm getting. Hey, I hired you. I agreed to pay you a denarius. Take what is yours. Am I evil because I choose to do this with my things? Okay. To human reason, it's unfair. But it's a parable of divine grace and that salvation is a gift of God by his grace and not by works. And to highlight that, you have laborers. What do laborers do? Work. Work. But they're all paid the same. So it's not based, so what they're paid is not based upon their work, but upon what the Lord agreed to give them. Okay? So the scandal, this is what parables do. They um, highlight the scandal of God's grace, the scandal of the gospel. And this is a classic a parable on that. Okay? Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, and a denarius is typically, Bible times, a day's wage. He sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into my vineyard. There's the call. Whatever is right, I will give you. And they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard. Whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, Let me pause here, by the way. Some people are called to faith when they're little babies and they live to be 96. Some people are called to faith when they're 96. Some people are called to faith when they're hanging on a cross about to die. Today you'll be with me in paradise. All receive the same denarius. It's right because it comes on the basis of the merits of Christ. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, 
Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. How about that? So not only, here's another highlight of grace. It's not only Sarah who gets the money first, and then if there's anything left, Beth will get hers. No, here he starts with the last, pays the last first, and the first get paid last, okay? Again, highlighting grace. And when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarius, but when the first came, they supposed they would receive more. Certainly, we're going to receive more. And they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they murmured against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last. So is it not lawful for me to do what I wish? The authority of Jesus to distribute salvation comes from him, not from us. From him who has done all for us. Okay? And so uh, all of these aspects in this parable highlight divine grace. I did not do what I said I was going to do, is start out with the picture. So I'll have to finish up with the picture. Um, there, this scene that is depicted is at the end of the day, uh, the, the wages are being distributed. So you see the table there with the wages. And then you see in their hands, they were getting the same thing. And you see the guy in green, for example, has the disgruntled look on his face. In fact, those three guys on the right all seem to be kind of disgruntled, okay? Now, on the last day, I'll, let me tell you what this parable does not teach. On the last day, when Jesus comes again in glory, there are not going to be disgruntled Christians, okay? So, it, it's not um, connected to the eschaton, the last day, in that sense, but it is about the gift of salvation. And it does explore the idea that in this life, the giving and receiving of the grace of God in Christ is sometimes a cause of resentment or the temptation to resentment. Do you follow? And I've certainly seen it uh, in the church. Where, like this, is, let me ask you this. Is there work that is associated with or activity with the Christian faith? As disciples of Jesus, certainly there is. And I'm not just talking about church work, but I mean 
every aspect of our life. Our faith in Christ means that we're called to live a certain way and so forth. Okay? So I have witnessed resentment of, you know, on the part of those who have been in the church and faithful, long-standing members who look down their nose at someone who is a Johnny-come-lately or who has struggled with problems in their family and life. And here they seem to have the same kind of access to the benefits. That's not right. Uh, okay. Or um, those who are treated more fairly or, more, or are honored more because they have given uh, substantial memorials to the church. Have you ever experienced that? This daughter of a pastor here? So I'm against putting the plaque, you know, Tom Alfdenberg, a very fantastic, yeah, (laughs) underneath things, okay. So in the in the account, looking at the meditation. The parable of the laborers in the vineyard runs contrary to human reason because the sinful flesh in each one of us believes that it can save itself by its own works and achievements. This is a lie, but it is part of our flesh, and it is seen in the self-centeredness of the workers who believe that they were being treated unfairly. To human reason, salvation seems unfair because it is not based on works. But the problem of sin killed us. It brought death into the world and separated us from God. Only the Lord in his love could fix the problem that we caused. If it were possible for us to have saved ourselves, there would have been no reason for Jesus to die upon the cross. But the only one who could successfully work for our salvation is the Lord himself. He alone could rescue us from sin and death. He died for us because he loves us. And by his death alone, we have the kingdom of heaven, forgiveness of sin, eternal life, and the strength to live each day as Christians. This gift applies to the thief on the cross who received the salvation moments before his death, as well as to the 90-year-old Christian who was baptized as an infant Salvation from beginning to end is a gift of God's grace. God's grace is a radical love that is completely different from the ways of the world. The Bible says God made us alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The grace of God is proclaimed by the landowner in the words of the parable. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. It is as if Jesus were saying, Friend, I am forgiving you your sins. I am dying for you upon the cross. It is my desire to do this for all sinners. I wish to give the gift of salvation to the last man the same as I gave to you. Is it not lawful for me to do that what I wish with my own things? 
Since I alone earned forgiveness, life, and salvation for the whole world in my death upon the cross, do I not have the authority to give it to whomever I choose? Of course, the answer is yes. And it is this gift of God's grace, which is the source of our comfort and strength. Okay. Any uh, questions about the parable of the workers in the vineyard? Beth. Yes, that's true. That is true. That's another oddity. Okay. Yeah. The missionary character of, of God. Okay. All right. Then the sower and the seed. Luke 8, 4 through 15. So let's do what I said I was going to do. Here's the picture. The parable of the sower and the seed. There's the sower. This is a good segue, Beth, of your comment about the landowner who does odd things going out when he does. This sower, look at, you've got the crows down here on the hard-packed ground, got areas of rocks and weeds and so forth, and he's out there scattering the seed where it doesn't belong. Okay? So just like the parable of the workers in the vineyard, this also is a parable of grace. Because, um, who did I ask this to recently in a Bible class? Who, who did I? Yeah, oh yeah, Bob. So, you know, would you, what would you do? You'd fire this guy if he's scattering the seed where it doesn't belong. Seed's expensive. And three-quarters of it went where it, in soil that wasn't prepared to receive it. What a testimony to the grace of God. All right. So back to the, uh, to the story alone. Luke chapter 8. Not Matthew, but Luke. Let's take a look at that. The uh, parable of the sower and the seed is found both in Matthew and Luke. And this is the Luke account, starting at verse 4. And when a great multitude had gathered, and others had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Parables are not illustrations that make things easier to understand. Parables are not illustrations that make things easier to understand. as Jesus will point out in a moment. Parables are stories that Jesus tells that highlight the mysteries of God's grace for Christians. They help us meditate and think about those things. So they are not immediately self-evident, as some might think. So a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside. Idiot. 
and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, idiot. And as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, idiot. And the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples say, We got it. We understand what this is about. Let's move on. Then his disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. See, Jesus makes the point that I just made, that they do not, they're not illustrations that make it simple for everybody to understand, least of all the unbeliever. The believers don't even understand it and need, need it explained, which is what he does next. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. <laughs> Good. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. So what is the devil to the word? The seed is the word. The birds are the devil who snatch it away. So what is the devil to the word? This is not hard. Steals it, takes it away. What is his relationship to the word? He's an enemy. He's an enemy of the word. Has not this been so since the beginning? Did God really say he's an enemy of the word? He wants to snatch away the word. Okay. And what is he to faith? The devil, Satan. Again, an enemy to, he's an enemy of the word, and therefore he is an enemy of faith. Okay? So <clears throat> sometimes people, when they look at the parable of the sower and the seed, they're fixated upon what soil I am. When the first thing that the parable is about is faith is a miracle of God's word. Because the only thing that produces faith is the seed of the word. The soil doesn't produce the faith. The word does. Okay? And then it talks about what the enemies of the word and the enemies of faith are. And the first one is Satan. He's an enemy of the word. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. So temptation or testing is what to the word and to faith? Another enemy but that fights against it. And the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, 
and bring no fruit to maturity. So what are the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life to the word and to faith? Again, an enemy. And this runs, this is counterintuitive for us here again because we don't, we don't want to go through testing hard times or we don't want to lose now here the pleasures of life, the, the riches of life, when maybe losing those things would be the best thing for us. Because the one thing needful is the word by which faith is created and sustained. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. So there it is. Devil, world, and flesh. How about that? Did you see that? So under central thoughts, Jesus is the sower and the seed is the word of God. <clears throat> the word of God alone creates the miracle of faith in Jesus, the good ground. Now what's interesting is ground is by definition inert. Um, it has rocks in it, it has weeds in it, thorns and thistles in it. Um, the gardens don't weed themselves, do they? And left unattended by outside influences, they will grow worse and worse. The uh, Freeze and thaws do push stones up in fields. However, they're still in the fields. And they gotta be they gotta be picked up. Did anybody ever do that as a kid? Go through the fields and pick up rocks. Pick up rocks. In Iowa they walked they walked beans. Those are horrible jobs. Iowa. Iowa. Okay. You, usually it's it's a roundup that you spray on the broadleaf weeds. Huh? Well. Okay, the gospel is preached everywhere <clears throat> as a sign of God's grace and salvation for all people. The devil is an enemy of faith in Christ. He does not want people to hear the word of God and believe it, the wayside. Trouble and suffering threaten our faith in Christ when our faith is not deeply rooted in God's word, the rocks. Earthly cares, riches, and pleasures seek to take the place of Christ and to choke out faith in him, the thorns. So again, I emphasize that the... It's a miracle that anyone believes. And it's a miracle of God, the Holy Spirit, through the word. 
and they're our enemies to the word and faith that, um, that we need to be taught about. In the, um, <clears throat> at the end of the meditation, the mystery of God's grace in his word is that it is only the word of God that can create good soil in our hearts. It is the word by which Satan is driven out, by which faith is strengthened to withstand the troubles of life with joy, and by which we are preserved in the true faith against every temptation to make a God out of the things of this world. As a faithful sower prepares the soil to receive the seed, so the Lord, by the very word that he sows in our hearts, makes of us good ground. By the grace of God, his word creates a noble and good heart that keeps the word and bears fruit with perseverance. So I wanted to read that last part just to highlight and accent again that only God can make of us good soil. And uh, the very word that, is, that produces faith is also that by which our hearts are prepared to receive it. This is seen elsewhere in miracles that Jesus performs, like, for example, the healing of the deaf mute. He doesn't even have the equipment to hear the word that is necessary to bring about his faith and salvation. So the word creates both the faith that is created and the capacity to receive that word. You follow? Okay. Yes? <clears throat> An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So, I think that's I think a. That's missing its point. It's missing the point okay. because it's a silly earthly story. Yeah. Because these stories are just bizarre. The sower went out to sow seed. The the worker the labors nobody nobody works like the laborer who goes out and hires the people like he does. First of all, if I'm the landowner. I'll pay Sarah the denarius because she worked a day, but I'm not, I don't want to pay you a denarius because that costs me a denarius. A, a denarius. I want to pay you less than that. Right? That's how things work in the world. Okay? So also with this, the, the expert sower in biblical times, this is why people hearing this would have gone, what? He, he sows only where the soil is prepared and it's good and nowhere else because it costs money. So it's really not a, help, a cliche that actually misses the mark. All right, and then here's Jesus heals the blind man. Luke 18, 31 through 43. I like this picture because of the lighting in the picture where um, it's, it's kind of like backlit, you know? And uh, the man is shrouded in darkness. Um, ironically or paradoxically, Jesus is um, in darkness himself. And so I think what the artist is intending to do there is show how Jesus um, 
has come to make the darkness of our sin and death his own. Yeah, you don't like that. That's right. And so that's, that's always artistically blessed exchange stuff where he's taking to himself our sin and death and darkness. Okay, Luke 18, 31 through 43. <clears throat> then he took the 12... Now, remember, this is the Quinquagesimus Sunday, the Sunday before Ash Wednesday, the Sunday before the beginning of Lent. He took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. And they're going to witness those things being accomplished according to what was written of him, even though when it's happening, they're not getting it. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. And they will scourge him and put him to death, and the third day he will rise again. Now, that's pretty plain speech, isn't it? You know, you, you, you long, Tom, don't you, to get a straight answer from Jesus? My mother used to say that to me and my brother. You know, give me a straight answer. You're always joking, and you're not giving a straight answer. But here, Jesus gives the straight answer. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. That's so easy to do. When you, have, when you expect to hear something, no matter what you hear, you hear what you expected to hear. You know, no matter what was said, you, well, yeah. you still hear what you expected to hear. That's true. Notice what verse 34 says. This saying was hidden from them. So, not only is what you said true, Tom, but actually what Jesus was saying, though he said it, was by God hidden from them. Why? They needed to go through the experience of this with all of their human frailties, weaknesses, misconceptions, faulty reason for their own instruction. All right. Yeah, you're anticipating where I was going next. Luke 18, Matthew, or Luke 24, same gospel, and Luke, is the evangelist, is doing this. Okay? Uh, they were prevented from recognizing him on the road to Emmaus on Easter. Here, this saying was hidden from them. And here again, what Jesus wants to do is highlight the word and the fulfillment of the word in the things that, that he does and how the only source of faith is not experience but the word. Even the events themselves, the event of our salvation in the cross of Christ and in the resurrection is fulfilled word. Okay? And that's part of what he wants to teach. It is only the word that gives sight to blind reason and to blind unbelief. Okay? And so 
he, he, he wants to underscore that. And this, this should come as no surprise, right? Going back, by the word, all things were created out of nothing. So to assert that all things are dependent upon the word is something that our reason might fight against, but it is nonetheless the truth. So this verses 31 through 34 are a really important part of this gospel. And they set the stage for the blind Bartimaeus and this miracle. And Luke, Sarah, is the evangelist associated with which apostle, do you know? Paul. Paul. Who, when he came to Corinth, he writes about this in 1 Corinthians, he says, when I came among you, I determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So the crucifixion of the Son of God and his resurrection the third day are the lens through which we see God rightly. Apart from the death and resurrection of the Christ, according to the scriptures, we be blind. We do not know nothing. We cannot see nothing. But the death and resurrection of the Christ, according to the scriptures, that is the lens that brings everything into focus and allows us to see. It is the death and resurrection of the Christ that enables us to interpret sin, the fallenness of this world, the darkness of this life, and understand both its origin and its solution. Do you follow? So everything... Everything of Christian doctrine, everything of the Christian confession is connected back to the suffering, death, and resurrection of the Christ according to the scriptures. That is the lens that brings everything into focus apart from which we cannot see and we are blind. Okay? So, then it happened that as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging which Becca used to sing as a youth. Blind man stood by the road and he cried. Blind man stood by the road and he cried. Blind man stood by the road and he cried. Oh, show me the way. Okay. She's getting all red in the face. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God, and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. 
So when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, his proper name, then he cries out and he won't stop. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So what does that cry of the blind man indicate about him? He believes. So clearly, he has heard of Jesus. Okay? And what did others say in response to his cry of faith? Yeah. They warned him that they should be, that he should be quiet. Okay. What? Okay, what, who is blind, who is blind in this story and who sees? Those who see are the blind ones and the one who is blind is the one who sees. Which is why Jesus then says, your faith has saved you. How about that? Your faith has saved you. Um, it means your Jesus has saved you, which is the last, second to last question, because Jesus, the soon-to-be-crucified and resurrected Lord, was his salvation, the source of his sight, faith, understanding, and salvation. That's why he cried out to him. So, <clears throat> on the one hand, you could say the man's physical blindness was a sign of the blindness that, of unbelief that is the human condition and problem. But that the man cries out the way is, this is the sight of faith. For he sees Jesus rightly. And so when Jesus says, your faith has saved you, his faith saved him because he, by the grace of God, saw Jesus clearly as his savior. And the response to the miracle of faith and salvation is they gave praise to God. So in this meditation, <clears throat> the miracle of Jesus restoring sight to a blind man takes place shortly before Jesus went to Jerusalem to die upon the cross. The account begins with Jesus' prediction, according to the Old Testament scriptures, that he must go up to Jerusalem to suffer, die, and rise again. It was the third time that Jesus had made such a prediction, but the disciples did not understand it, and the saying was hidden from their eyes. The image of the blind man is a picture of what the disciples and all sinful humanity is apart from the miracle of faith. We cannot know. We cannot believe. We cannot accept Jesus' death and resurrection by our own reason or strength. Impenitence and unbelief are like blindness, Repentance and faith are like sight. True faith, the faith that the Lord creates in our hearts by his word and spirit, enables us to see our sin rightly and to see that only Jesus' death and resurrection can save him. So you got that blind man, son of David, have mercy on me. He will not stop saying that. He must die for our sins according to the scriptures. He must rise again the third day according to the scriptures. Only the miracle of faith can see and understand that his death and resurrection are our salvation. 
Though the blind man could not could, could see could not see with his eyes, by the grace of God he saw Jesus for who he really was and believed in him. The blind man cried out to Jesus in faith for what he needed most, mercy. He confessed both his sin and his Savior. Having heard who Jesus was, he confessed him to be the Son of David, the Christ, the Savior of the world. In asking to receive his sight, the blind man asks for more of what he already has, the gift of faith, mercy, and salvation. In Jesus' question and the man's response, we see that Christians are called to pray continually to have their eyes opened so that they might see Jesus ever more clearly for who he is and for what he does for us. Your faith has saved you means your Jesus has saved you because Jesus alone opened his eyes to see. In the end, faith in Christ gives all glory to God. And there we have it. Beth. Well, the, the correlation is that it is the call of the Lord Jesus. What, what Jesus did in that moment, saying, calling the man to him, to be brought to him, is what Jesus was doing in the word that this guy obviously had encountered before this. By the word, we are called to him. We don't go to him, we are drawn to him. John 6, you know, he will be lifted up and he will draw all people to himself. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? You look tired, Sarah. Got to get some rest. Okay. All right, let us close with prayer. Oh, Lord Jesus, as you open the eyes of the blind man to see you clearly, and to receive the gift of salvation, so open our eyes to see your death and resurrection as our only source of mercy and comfort. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Turn off the recording.